Thank you for joining us on the sermon podcast for Mars Hill Cumberland Presbyterian Church. We love being able to distribute our sermons in this format, but we would love it even more if you could join us in person at 5208 Crow Mountain Road in Russellville, Arkansas, or online at the Mars Hill Cumberland Presbyterian Church Facebook page. We have Sunday school classes at 9 a.m. with a worship service right after at 10 a.m. Let's now prepare our hearts to hear a message from God's Word. morning again. If you have your Bibles, turn with me into the book of Jude, towards the end of the New Testament, right behind the book of Revelation. We're going to read the first four verses from the book of Jude. And when you get there, if you would, stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. Hear the word of the Lord. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ. Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. This ends the reading of God's Word, the Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God for the reading of His Word. You may be seated. Let's pray. Almighty and gracious God, your word is truth, and in a culture which embraces falsehood and and doesn't believe there is a foundational objective truth, Lord, let your word sound out. Let your word sound out as a cry into the static of our culture. Let your word be as a light that goes forth in the darkness. And Father, let it pierce our own souls and let it expose the darkness that we try to hide from you. Father, in in, in exposing our darkness, let us be comforted by the good news of your Son, who has come to forgive us and love us and set us free. We ask this in his name. Amen. Amen. In 1604, King James I gave the order for the King James Version of the Bible to be published. The project would not be completed until 1611. However, in 1605, in response to hearing that there would be a massive translation of the Bible endorsed by the king that was translated by Protestants, some of England's roughest Roman Catholic men, led by Guy Fawkes, schemed to blow up the House of Parliament with gunpowder and murder the king and everyone else who was inside. One of the group members, Francis Tresham, became a traitor to his companions and he sent an anonymous letter warning his brother-in-law, Lord Monteague, telling him not to attend Parliament on November 5th. As a result, Guy Fawkes and some of his companions were captured and the plot foiled. They were imprisoned and tortured and on January 31st, 1606, Guy Fawkes and seven others were hanged. On the very night that the plan was foiled, on November 5th, 1605, bonfires were set alight to celebrate the safety of the king. 
Since then, November 5th has become known as Bonfire Night or Guy Fawkes Night. The event is commemorated every year with fireworks and burning effigies of Guy Fawkes on a bonfire, and even many Reformed and Protestant churches in England would hold special services every November 5th where the pastor would preach sermons against the papacy and the evils of Roman Catholicism. I have a friend who's a hardcore Presbyterian. This is right up his alley. Um, To this day, there's even a common rhyme that uh, memorializes the, the failed plot to take the life of the king that often gets shared at these celebrations. And some of you may have even heard it. It goes, remember, remember the 5th of November, the gunpowder treason and plot. I know of no reason why the gunpowder treason should ever be forgot. Guy Fox, Guy Fox, twas his intent to blow up the king and parliament. Three score barrels of powder below, poor old England to overthrow. By God's providence, he was catched with a dark lantern and burning match. So what Jude is telling us this morning is that there's been a plot to overthrow the king, and the plot failed the moment our king defeated death and stepped into heaven to take his place at the right hand of the Father. The problem is that those who set the plot don't even know that they've already been defeated. Now, if you've been paying attention, then this goes right along with what we've been talking about in 2nd and 3rd John the last few weeks. In 2nd John, John deals with antichrists who want to distort the teachings of who Jesus is and what he has said about himself and then... In 3 John, John deals with Diotrephes who functionally wants to take the place of Christ and be preeminent in the church. Now Jude, in that same vein, writes to this congregation about the need to remember who they are and remember what they've been called to do and who they've been called to be because in their remembrance, they can stand against those who want to distort the truth. If they can remember the story that God has written them into, then they can withstand those who want to tell a different story. I'll say that again. If they can remember the story that God has written them into, then they can withstand those who want to tell a different story. So in the spirit of remembrance, there's three things that we need to be reminded of. First of all, we need to be reminded of the condition of the church. We also need to be reminded of the call of the church. And we also need to be reminded of the caution of the church. If you have your bulletin, you'll notice that there's normally sermon outlines on the back. I, I ran out of black ink, so some of you got completed outlines. Um, some of you got a, almost a blank page. Uh, so for those of you who got a blank page, if you don't like the sermon, just write your own. Um, we'll be fine. <laughs> so... Notice, first of all, as we look at the text, notice in verse 1, the condition of the church. Notice how Jude describes those to whom he writes. He says, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ. So Jude begins by describing his audience with what I would describe as the three major identifiers that mark a believer. The three major identifiers that mark a believer. First, he describes them as being called. The Greek word for called is kaleo, and William Barclay, excellent historical commentator, he provides us with three ways that the word called, or the word kaleo, is used in the New Testament. When we read Jude referring to his audience as called, we need to have all three of these 
pictures in our mind. First of all, Barclay says that it is a word for summoning a man to an office or responsibility. Often the Apostle Paul would describe himself as someone who was called to be an apostle by the will of God. He was referring to himself as someone who had been called to a responsibility or a duty. The next picture that Barclay gives us is that kaleo is the word for summoning a man to a feast or a festival. It's like being invited to a party. In Luke 14, 15 through 24, I won't, I won't read it, but you can look it up on your own. Jesus tells a story about a king throwing a party. He's, he's hosting a banquet, and he wants every place at the table to be filled. And when people make excuses for not being able to make it to the party, he had his servants go out into the highways and byways so that they could compel the lame, the blind, and the beggars to come in. The king wanted his house to be full, so he issued a call to those who would come and fill the house. Another way that we experience this kind of calling to a festival or a feast is when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. The bread and the wine are laid out as His body and His blood and we are invited to the table to partake of His grace. And so God calls us. And as the old hymn, as the old hymn says that I used to grow up singing in, in our Pentecostal churches, Jesus has a table spread where the saints of God are fed. He invites His chosen people to come and dine. That song has a lot more meaning to me now that I understand what the Lord's Supper is for us. Barclay also says that this word kaleo is also a word for summoning a man to judgment. It is the word for calling a man to court so that he may give an account of himself. Now you hear that and you think, well, that doesn't sound like good news. But if we go back to 1 John, where we were for several weeks, we recall that in 1 John 2.1, John tells us that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Do you remember what he said an advocate? Do you remember what we said that an advocate is? It's a defense attorney. And so we stand before God guilty and condemned, but then Jesus comes to our defense in court and presents His shed blood as evidence that our sins have been forgiven. And so God calls us in all three of these ways. He calls us to responsibility. He calls us to a feast. He calls us to judgment. And in all three of these senses of calling, grace upon grace upon grace is poured out. We are empowered to do the duty we've been called to do. We are fed by the, by the bread and the wine. We are exonerated in the court of judgment by the blood of Christ. And so in a way, God calling us is, is a call to grace. is a call for us to understand what we have been given freely in Christ. Not only... Has, not only have we been called, not only have Jude's audience been called, but they are also sanctified. We are also sanctified. The Greek word for sanctified is hagiazo. And this word means to be set apart. Our confession of faith even defines sanctification as God's setting apart of believers as servants in the world. In 2 Corinthians 6, 14-18, Paul is using Old Testament passages to talk about how the church should not be yoked together with unbelievers. And even though he doesn't use the word sanctification, he does describe the principle of sanctification when he uses four different passages in the Old Testament to talk about the setting apart of God's people, to describe how we should be a separate people from the world. 
And it, for, for those of you who want to look at those passages later, they are Numbers 33, 51 through 56, Isaiah 52, 11, 2 Samuel 7, 14, Jeremiah 31, 1 and 9. And if you didn't get those, I'll give them to you later. In, they're in my notes. And so, and so Paul uses all four of these passages in just two verses in 2 Corinthians 16 through 18 when he says, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord God Almighty. Now normally when people talk about sanctification, they talk about behavior. Do this, don't do this. But behavior comes as a result of sanctification, not as a way to earn it. You understand that God has separated you from who you once were, and now things are different. So listen to me very carefully. Sanctification has more to do with where you are than what you do. For example, I'm standing on this platform right now, so there is a sense in which I am sanctified from the assembly. I'm standing apart from the assembly. When God saved you, He sanctified you because He picked you up from where you were and He placed you in Christ. And once you recognize your place in Christ, it changes everything else. Now you might think, well, I thought sanctification was an ongoing work. It is. You know why? Because it takes your entire life to figure out exactly what being in Christ means. And you're not always going to get it right. But God is going to be walking with you every step of the way. He's going to be walking with you. He's going to be walking ahead of you. He's going to be walking in you. Brothers and sisters, take heart because your sanctification doesn't rest on your shoulders. It rests on Christ's finished work. And so not only are we called, not only are we sanctified, but we are also preserved. The Greek word for preserved is tereo. And this means to guard, to reserve, or to keep from escaping. So Jude reminds his audience of something we need to be reminded of every day of our lives. God has called us, God has set us apart, and we're not going anywhere. He has us in the palm of His hand. Our very identity rests in Him. Look at what he says through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 49, 15 through 16. He, he says, Can a woman forget her baby who nurses at her breast? Can she withhold compassion from the child she has born? Even if mothers were to forget, I could never forget you. Look, I have inscribed your name on my palms. Now what does it mean that you're preserved? It means that you're kept in Christ. You're connected to Him. You can't ever be separated from Him. F.B. Meyer wrote about two Germans who wanted to climb the Matterhorn and they hired three guides and began their ascent at the steepest and most slippery part. And the men roped themselves together in this order. Guide, traveler, guide, traveler, guide. They had gone 
only a little way up the side when the last man lost his footing. He was held up temporarily by the other four, but each had a toehold in the, in the niches and that they had cut in the ice. But then the next man slipped and he pulled down the two above him. The only one to stand firm was the first guide who had driven a spike into the ice. Because he held his ground, all the men beneath him regained their footing. He said, I'm like one of those men who slipped. But thank God I am bound in a living partnership to Christ. And because he stands, I will never perish. And so that's our condition. We are called. We are sanctified. We are kept. Now let's see the call of the church. In verse 3, Jude says, Beloved, I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation. I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Now the word contend is interesting as well. It means to compete athletically. Danny Aiken says that this word means to fight or struggle with intense effort. So something we have to keep in mind is that Jude doesn't write this to a specific pastor or person, but he writes it to a local body. What what this tells us is that it's the church's job as a whole to stand and struggle for the faith that has been passed down. It's, It's your job. It's my job. It's our job together as a whole to contend and to to struggle for the purity of, of the doctrine of the faith that has been passed down to us. And so what is it that's been passed down? Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, a matter of fact, I'll turn there and read that passage. Paul is describing the resurrection. Paul is describing the effects of the resurrection of Christ. And this is what he says. And moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved if you hold fast that word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Then by twelve, or and He was seen by Cephas, and then by twelve. After that He was seen by over five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that He was seen by James, and then He was seen also by me by one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. And so what Paul is saying there is he's laying out what the resurrection is. He's laying out who witnessed the resurrection. Notice, first of all, he cites the Scriptures as evidence for the resurrection. He cites the Scriptures that were written before the time of Christ as evidence for Christ's resurrection. He says these Scriptures 
point to the reality that our Messiah will rise again. And then not only does he use the scriptures as source material, but he uses the very witnesses of Christ's resurrection as source material, including himself. And he says, he's, he's profoundly speaking about how important this is. We can't lose this, because if we lose this, we lose everything. And that's what the entire 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians is about. First part, he talks about Christ's resurrection. The second part of the chapter, he talks about our own resurrection and how all of that is connected. Because if Christ hasn't been raised, we don't rise. If Christ hasn't been raised, then all this is for nothing. We're wasting our time. If, if Christ hasn't risen, our worship here on Sunday morning doesn't mean nothing. You're paying me for nothing. I'm a terrible Netflix subscription. So, what are we doing? We're talking about what the gospel is and what it means for us. And Paul is, Paul is very adamant about this. We shouldn't lose this. And Jude reiterates this in his letter. He says, you've got to fight for this. You've got to contend for this. This means everything. Because if Christ hasn't risen, resurrection doesn't matter. Morality doesn't matter. We can just go back to doing what we were doing before. And so when we think about the resurrection, what it means is that not only can we be raised from physical death at some point in the future, but it also means that we can be raised from spiritual death now. Because we can be raised from spiritual death now, we should be living our lives as though we are, as though we are living people. Because we are. We haven't been made alive just to go back to a life of death. In Romans 6.2, Paul argues this point further when he says, How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Well, if you've been made alive, how can you go back to the tomb? And so what Jude is saying here is that it's the church's responsibility as a whole to fight for that doctrine and teaching which brings life to its hearers. I feel like some of us may have forgotten how to fight or maybe we never learned how to fight to begin with. But when you have people in your life that you love and you care about, you'll fight for what's best for them. When there's a part of the body of Christ that wants to rebel and they say, you know, we could attract a lot more people if we just change our teaching a little bit. We could be more effective if we just stop preaching on sin all the time. All we have to do is interpret certain passages of Scripture through the lens of an obscure textual critic and then we can make it say anything we want. When there's a part of the body of Christ that does that, it's our responsibility to mourn and grieve and call them to repentance because if, if they really are, our brothers and sisters in Christ, then we want to be unified as a family. When there's a part of the body that says and does things like that, it's our job to correct that teaching. It's our job to correct them. And that's why as Cumberland Presbyterians, we have the kind of church government we have. If a church in our presbytery is saying or doing something that goes against the confession of faith, or even worse, goes against Scripture, we should be able to go to our board of missions or our committee on ministry and say, hey, you might ought to have a talk with them. 
We are called to keep the message of the gospel pure. Why? Because not only do we have to remind ourselves of the condition of the church and the call of the church, we have to be reminded of the caution of the church. If we look at verse 4, we'll see what that caution is. Jude says, For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. And so every Christian needs to stand and contend for the truth, regardless of what denominational context they find themselves in. Because we live in an era where pastors are coming out of their educational, out of our educational institutions with an air of what D.A. Carson calls imperial ignorance. And what that means is that these pastors are getting up in the pulpit, they're reading the text, and then they're basically saying, well, this text is so old and difficult, we can't possibly know what it means. And... You're all arrogant if you think you can know what it means, so we might as well just do whatever we want. It's imperial ignorance. Of course, even though hardly anyone says those exact words out loud, that's basically the idea behind why people want to either undermine the law or the gospel. They undermine the law. They they look at, the, they look at the, the commands of the Word of God and they say, these prohibitions against sexual immorality, they can't possibly mean anything to us today. Those ideas, they just reek of patriarchy, right? Patriarchy is the unforgivable sin in our culture. And so, the, they can't possibly mean anything to us today, so we have to get rid of that. And then they undermine the gospel. They... The text says that they turn the grace of God into lewdness. What they do is they say, well, we're under grace. We can do anything we want. We can live any way we want. And you're not allowed to judge us or shame us. Judging and shaming is also the unforgivable sin of our culture, by the way. And so, there are people who want to undermine the law and the gospel and they want to dismiss it. But we, as believers, we are called to contend. We are not called to just sit on the sidelines and mind our own business. We can't be individualistic about something this important. We are called to contend. John Calvin, one of my favorite theologians, he said, a dog barks when his master is attacked, and I would be a coward if I saw that God's truth is attacked and yet would remain silent. Why? Because grace doesn't lead to lewdness. Grace doesn't lead to licentiousness. Grace doesn't lead to a license to sin. Grace doesn't take you back to the tomb that it called you out of. Titus chapter 2 verses 11 and 12 tells us exactly what grace does for us. Paul says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lusts and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age. The grace of God leads you into godly sensibilities. And whenever you begin to live and even to revel in your rebellion, it's because you've neglected the work of grace in your life. I think I can prove this logically from Scripture and especially from our very own Confession of Faith. In chapter 4 of section 22 of the Cumberland Presbyterian Confession of Faith, it says, As believers continue to partake 
of God's covenant of grace. To live in the covenant community and to serve God in the world, they are able to grow in grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ as Lord. Believers never achieve sinless perfection in this life, but through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, they can be progressively conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, thereby growing in faith, hope, love, and other gifts of the Spirit. Now, if we stay in that same chapter in the confession, it goes on to tell us what happens when the opposite of that happens. In chapter 4, section 26, our confession says, As a consequence of temptation and the neglect of the means of grace, believers sin, incur God's displeasure, and deprive themselves of some of the graces and comforts promised to them. But believers will never rest satisfied until they confess their sin and are renewed in their consecration to God. So Jude is warning us that there are those who have crept into the church unnoticed. They have arrived in that big Trojan horse that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. If you don't remember, the CDs are out in the foyer. They, they have traipsed in into this big Trojan horse that we talked about. And they brought in all kinds of ungodliness. And in doing so, they turned the grace of God into a license for sin instead of a gateway for biblical freedom. They've neglected the doctrines of grace, and yet they say they are under grace. They've neglected the means of grace, and yet, say, and yet they say grace has allowed them to do so. It's ridiculous when you think about it. So what do we do in the midst of this? What are we to take from this text? We are to remember the truth about who we are in Christ, and let that be the solid ground on which we build our lives. The chaos can't go on forever. As I mentioned in Sunday school this morning, chaos is never sustainable. We need to take comfort in who Christ is for us and who He has called us to be. In Philippians 2, 15 and 16, the Apostle Paul tells us that we are to be children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom we shine as stars in the world, holding fast to the word of life. As the people of God, we are a source of light in the darkness. It is imperative that we stay faithful to what we know to be true. And we must do this for the sake of the world, for the sake of the culture, for the sake of our families, and for the sake of our own souls. Let's pray. Gracious and almighty God, this word is hard, but it is for us. And Father, we want to take it to heart. We want to go this week with this word echoing in our ears and in our souls. Father, we want to leave here knowing that there is good news for us and for our culture. We want to leave knowing that your grace is free and that your grace can take us to places that our works never could. Father, we ask that you send your grace to conform us to the image of your Son and make us to be like him in everything we do and in all the decisions we make. We ask this in his name. Amen. for joining us for this special message. We hope you were blessed and encouraged by the preaching and teaching of God's Word. Now, may the Lord bless you, keep you, make His face to shine upon you, and give you peace. Amen.